All right, so we're back with another podcast. As we teased last time, we're going to be talking about first principles thinking this week. Um, again, first principles thinking is another mental model, and this is one of the next mental models in our series of that we're talking about, like tools for better thinking, sort of. Um, so we got a lot of questions this week. I guess we'll start out with um, this one for you, Nathan. What is first principles thinking? How would you describe it? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like the fundamentals of that particular thing, right? Um, before we talk about that, I think it might be kind of helpful to think about because first principles uh, thinking is used as an alternative method to how we normally think. So uh, one of the ways in which we normally think that they also talk about in the chapter is reasoning by analogy. So basically you try to understand something that's new in terms of something else, right? So um, abstractly, the way you think about this is um, object, let's say you got object X and object Y and uh, you know, object X has properties ABC and object Y has properties ABC. And uh, uh, let's say, oh, sorry, let's say you got X has A, B, C, and D, right? And then Y, well, you know it has A, B, and C. So then you say, well, Y probably has D too, right? Because they share these other properties and characteristics. So I'll give you an example of this type of um, reasoning by analogy or thinking through analogy. You would say, um, so for instance, Europa is one of um, the largest, what's well, one of the moons around Jupiter? right? And it has an atmosphere, which is oxygen, has a lot of oxygen in it. And Earth has an atmosphere that has a lot of oxygen in it. And we know that oxygen, having oxygen in your atmosphere is one of the prerequisites for life. So by reasoning by analogy, you could say, oh, well, maybe there's, um, you know, some forms of life on Europa, you know? Well, that's reasoning by analogy. Um, and first principles thinking is where you don't reason by analogy. So you don't try to understand something new or think about something new in terms of other things. Instead, you try to dissect that thing in and of itself and pull apart um, the different aspects of it until you can get to what the underlying, like what you were talking about, the fundamental axioms, the underlying um, atoms of that thing are. Um, so I think that might be useful as a just, you know, I think it's useful to, to think about the reason by analogy because we use it so much, you know, like we'll say, oh, well, this basketball player is like this other one, you know. And so you try to understand their game in terms of like some other basketball player that came before them because they share certain characteristics, share height, speed, attributes, etc. Yes. Yeah. 
Exactly. And, and you use that with use that with everything. When you start learning a programming language, you know, for us, um, a new programming language is always understood in terms of all the other programming languages you already know. You know, you'll see, say, JavaScript or something, you'll say, oh, well, it's syntax is like C, if you're coming from a C background, you know? And then you'll just say, oh, well, I can do while loops and if else statements and all that kind of stuff. You know, and you understand all those statements in terms of your understanding of C. Um, so um, one other thing I wanted to say is that, well, I wanted to ask you this. So why would you use first principles thinking in the first place? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay, so I think what you're getting at is kind of what I'm, where I was trying to head with this question, and that's that you're trying to improve something. You've got something that's working in the real world, but it might not be working as well as you'd like, you know, and you'd like it to be better. <laughs> so it's kind of used as a tool to go back and like reevaluate it a lot of times and say, well, okay, how can I improve this thing? You know, especially if you've worked on something for a while and you've made steady improvements, but you're at a point where now, you know, you don't really know where to improve. Like there is one advantage to thinking by analogy. Well, there's a lot of advantages. You know, one of them is you can use all your previous knowledge to quickly understand something new, you know. Um, and so you can say, oh, well, it's like this other thing I already know, you know, um, this new car. I don't have to rethink uh, the physics of engines and um wheels and all this kind of stuff. I can understand the new model in terms of all the things I already know. So now I can optimize and tweak it slightly based on that, right? Um, but I think where it's, it seems to be really useful is when you want to, you're kind of at a sticking point and then you go back and you reevaluate and say, okay, you're, you're trying to think outside the box now because you, uh, reason by analogy isn't going to get you anywhere productive. That's one thing I thought about reading this chapter. Um, so it's a, it's a way to step outside, I think, conventional wisdom or conventional ways of thinking about something. I, I also listed out some other way, different ways I thought you could think about this. You can think of it, one is like a way to step outside the box, a way to get to the core underlying principles of something. You can also think of it kind of as a, mm, as a filter that looks at something and then gets rid of all the, um, I guess, assumptions and really tries to draw just the underlying facts about some matter. You know, so it's like a filter, getting rid of all this garbage that you don't really need. Um, and I, uh, another thing I think is you could look at it as an identifier. So like a little 
this flashlight, you shine at something when you think when you're thinking about first principles, thinking, okay, here's my flashlight, I'm gonna shine it on something, and it's going to identify the elements which in which are non-reducible. So I can't break these elements down any further. Everything else, it's gonna break down, break down, break down, and get rid of until you get these fine little core elements that won't um, break down any further. Well, there are some things, ways of thinking about this I had as I was reading through. Um, now, here's one question though. So let's say you analyze something, like your example with the battery. So you wanna get more lifetime in your battery. Um, and you've figured out, okay, well, it's made of these particular materials and um, you know, we can get 10 hours on it or whatever you're, you arrive at at the end of the day. Um, are the first principles that you arrive at, are they constant? Like, yeah. Yes. Exactly. And you could also say, okay, given a different understanding of physics, you know, a new model of physics or like what you talked about, new materials that we discover in the future or new situations, new contexts, essentially, the um, first principles would change, right? They would be need to be updated. So I think that's something important to keep in mind. You might have this idea, okay, I'm going to get down to the core fundamental axioms of something, and then they're not going to change. No. I mean, the world is in a constant state of change. Everything's changing around you. So you can always, you know, given enough time, go back and reevaluate the first principles and maybe find new ones now because technology has changed. The context has changed, you know? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it will also, yes, and it will dictate the way you question things and the way you approach it, I think, to a certain extent, you know. Um, but anyway, I think those are just things to know. Uh, it would be interesting, though, like given super knowledge, like knowledge of everything, um, using that method to get to first principles, because theoretically, would it change at that point? Probably not. I mean, if you knew everything and you did the analysis, I don't know. I still think, depending on what you're talking about, because the universe is in such a state of change. Like if you were going to talk about the first principles of the dialogue that person um, A has with person B, you're talking about a point in time where these two people are talking, you know, and then the first principles of that would change given a different point in time, different states in their minds, et cetera. 
you know, like whether or not one's angry at the other one, whether or not one has um, eaten, or whether or not one's impatient. You know, there's so many variables that are always changing. I don't know. It's just, I guess it's an interesting thought. Um, but let's move on to the next one. So, so we talked about like what, what first principles thinking is, I think. Um, now, what are the two main techniques? Do you remember this? Because they talk about two techniques in the chapter. Do you remember what they are? Okay, so the first one is the one that is actually the simplest, but also the hardest for me to like. Um, I, I think it's also one of the, it's not very useful, but it's called the five whys technique. And the idea behind it is you just keep asking why to kind of get to the root cause of something. That's, so if you came to me, um, let's say, you know, we're software developers, so we can always find good examples from software development. But like, um, let's say a user comes in, is like, hey, my, um, the application's not working, it's crashing every time I try to load it. You know, we would say, okay, why is that happening? Would be like, if me and you were talking about this um, era. And then, you know, that would, we'd say, well, it's happening because maybe, and we'd have different ideas. So the first one would be because they have a outdated operating system. Okay, so um, why do they have an outdated and operating system would be your next question. Um, and, and eventually what you're trying to get to is like the root cause of whatever the problem is. You know, you might, it might seem like the first um, would be, oh, well, you're just immediately there. So it's because they have an outdated operating system. But maybe that's not it. So maybe it's like, well, what's the next why? Um, maybe it's because we just released a new version of the software. You know, um, why did we just release a new version of the software? Because there was a previous bug in the in the loading program. Um, you know, and so you're starting to get to where possibly another the problem could be. If it's not so, so they can run in parallel these why questions, but you're just you're just basically trying to keep ask asking why to get to the root cause of some problem. Exactly. To the parents, just like, shut up, you're driving me crazy. <laughs> um, which is, I'm sure, what I did to our parents all the time. I was like, why, why, why? <laughs> yes, you're trying to get to like a how or a what or something like that. Um, I mean, personally, I think this is just, it's so basic. It's kind of useful to have that as a reference point, five whys, just ask why and keep trying to like boring, almost like a, you know, a tunneler or something or in a mine, just trying to get to the, to the core of the uh, mountain or something. Uh, maybe that's a helpful just way to think about this, but it's really just being, you know, question trying to get to the core of something. The second method is the one I feel like is a lot more useful, um, but it's also more difficult to keep in your head. And it's sort of the Socratic, it's what they call Socratic questioning. Um, and, you know, as I've said on numerous occasions, Socrates is my most favorite philosopher. Um, ostensibly, even though we actually have nothing that he wrote, so we don't know if, you know, all the things other people wrote about him were are accurate at all, really. But from what other people have wrote about him, he's my most favorite because he would go around convincing everyone that they knew nothing. <laughs> and he would openly say he knew nothing. And he used this method of questioning um, other people that is known as the Socratic method. 
or Socratic questioning. And I think it's very useful to analyze something, to figure out how it works. And the way I think about this now, well, first of all, let me ask you before I go on about what I think about it. So do you remember that part, first of all? And then what did you think about it when you were reading over it? Okay, so I, I guess I could talk about that a little bit. So the way I think about it is you've got kind of like your your origin questions. So questions about the origin of the problem. And then you've got like your, I guess, output questions. So in the origin questions, that's where you're going to be doing things like probing the assumptions. So you're, you're going to say, okay, what are we assuming here? You know, with, going back to our software example, we're assuming... Uh, the user has an outdated operating system. Maybe that's a wrong assumption, you know, because we, maybe we don't have the data. Maybe it's not the operating system. So, so that's where you're, maybe it's a bug in our code, actually, and that's the reason it's not running. Or maybe our servers were down last night. We don't, you know, we don't know. Maybe that's what caused this. So that's where you go down and you really question, like, what are, the, what are my assumptions about this problem in the first place? So these, this is in the origins aspect. Another thing you're going to do here is um, you're going to ask questions about the questions itself. Now, for this particular example, it's going to seem like maybe way over the top, but you're going to be like, is this the right question? Those are things like, um, is this the right question you should be asking? You know, um, for instance, how to solve um, the, pro the, the problem that on some computers our program crashes? Is that the right question or should we maybe not even install our software on people's computers at all and just have it all accessible via the web so that it's impossible for us to have this problem, right? That's, that's kind of another approach with these origin questions is like, well, is this even the right question? Okay, let's say maybe it is. Maybe for some reason, some business need, we have to install the software on people's computers. Well, then you would say, okay, well, are, what are the assumptions we're making there, you know? And then again, with another one of the origin type things, that's where you um, you look at sort of the, uh, I guess, what would you call it? Like you ask for clarification. So it's like, well, could you clarify this more? So that's where you dig in and say, okay, for the operating system, particular problem, what type of operating system are we talking about? You know, that's where you're trying to get very specific so that you have a very concrete idea of the problem itself. So, so those are the origin stuff. And when you're looking at the output, now you're trying to figure out like, what are the solutions? What are the ways to solve this? And so for that, that's where you're wanting to get different people's viewpoints on the problem. So maybe Nathan, like, I don't know what you might say. Nathan might say, well, you know, I, I noticed we were having problems with our database, that it was sometimes up and sometimes down. I think that might be one of the bugs. That might be the cause of this crashing, you know? And then, you know, maybe I'm one of the guys that wrote the parallel code. And so I would say, well, you know, I noticed um, in the parallel code, there was some undefined behavior in our tests. And sometimes the tests weren't working. Maybe that's what could be causing the program to crash. You know, that's where you're going to want to get different people's perspectives to try to develop a solution to the problem. Um, and then finally, I guess it's probing the implications. So that's where you would talk about like, okay, so given these different viewpoints, these different proposed solutions, what is actually going to happen if we do this solution? So let's say my solution would be very difficult because um, 
as we all know, writing code in parallel is extreme, is notoriously bug-ridden. So it's like, um, we need to, uh, my solution is to do a global lock on our program, um, which would, you know, destroy performance, but, um, and, and maybe, and that would be the implication that our application would run very slow and there would be certain conditions where the user would have to wait for even minutes to get a result, you know? And so maybe we don't want to, um, to do that in order to just, to avoid the application crashing a couple times, you know? Um, so I guess those are, that's the way I like to think about the Socratic method is, is like I said, sort of the, the origin, like questions about the questions, what are the assumptions, um, getting clarification about stuff, and then, and then looking at, well, what are the implications and getting people's different views on it as, as sort of the output side of things. Um, but I don't, you know, in the chapter, I don't, I'm not entirely sure even what they listed, but, um, I think it wasn't, it wasn't as, I don't think they made it that clear what it would be. And you need a lot of examples. It's great. I would recommend anyone, you know, just read any of those old, any, any of the writings of Plato, basically, who, who wrote about Socrates and all these other guys. They were doing this nonstop. They were in a constant sort of dialogue back and forth of asking different types of questions, getting different philosophers' views on things, um, getting, you know, questioning their assumptions, et cetera. <laughs> Oh, yes. Yeah, I mean, in my example, I made it fairly easy because it was a software bug. And it's easy for us. But I think if you're outside of your domain, it's going to be more difficult, definitely. Yeah. Um, did, did you think of any other approaches? Because really, um, in the chapter, they just mentioned those two, I think. Did you think of any other ways you might try to get to the core, uh, you know, the first principles of some something? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. That's actually interesting. I mean, it would definitely tell you what are the, what would you call it? Like, what is the main, I'm just imagining like a network of nodes and the biggest, you know, I'm sure you know this, like the biggest ones are the ones that have the most weight to them. So it would tell you, yeah, like the, the main ideas or concepts in a group of people. And the question is whether or not those, then you could say, oh, well, I've identified the main concepts. Now the question is, are those the first principles or are these like, you know, then you can start using all your other methods to figure out whether or not that, that is a first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I actually like that. So, um, yeah, I think for me, the one I thought about was Cartesian doubt, which is... Um, Basically, you're just, it's the process of being skeptical about everything, essentially. So you only accept information that you know is true when you uh, do, when you indulge in Cartesian doubt. And, and this is what led Descartes, I mean, that's where it comes from, Rene Descartes, 
the French philosopher. Um, you know, he's famous for his phrase, uh, cogito ergo sum, which is, I think, therefore I am. And that's because he engaged in this process of doubting everything except for the, the one thing he was absolutely certain of. But the one thing was the fact he's like, well, I am thinking right now. I know that. Like, <laughs> so uh, he's like, and, and, and I think it, it can be useful sometimes, especially to if you just say, well, what are the things I actually know that I know? Uh, very quickly, you get to an extremely small list. <laughs> well, well, the, the, the idea is you use like a slightly altered version, you know, like you kind of work off the assumption that, yes, you and I are both living in the same physical universe. Like there's a few assumptions you take into it and you say, okay, well, these are things that I don't, you know, I'm still not certain of, but I'm just going to assume them for right now, <laughs> you know, and then you engage on top of that in Cartesian doubt. And, and that can also be a fairly useful technique sometimes. Um, so let's go on to um, some of the examples. So this is where it was more difficult for me. I thought through the software engineering example because that was kind of like something like, okay, how could I apply this to my domain? Um, but do you remember any of the um, examples they had in the chapter of first principles thinking? Did it have the Elon example? Um, I don't think so, actually. I think I just, I found that somewhere with Elon breaking down, like for everyone, just so that we've defined it well, the Elon Musk sort of way of thinking about first principles thinking is he takes a very physics-based approach where he just simply sort of identifies the assumptions in something, um, breaks the problem down to its fundamental principles, and then creates new solutions from scratch based on those fun fundamental principles, right? Kind of like what we've just been, I mean, essentially what we've just been talking about. And so his example was a battery where, um, you know, he said a battery pa uh, packs are $600 per kilowatt hour. So to create a battery, it's six, it costs somehow $600 per kilowatt hour. Now, he said, first using first principles thinking, what are the material constituents of the battery? Like, then what is their market value? What do they cost? And if we just bought all those atoms essentially on the market what would we pay what would we be paying and it's eighty dollars and based off of that analysis he was able to say well look you know we've got 520 dollars coming from just rearranging these atoms so all we have to do is figure out a way to rearrange those atoms for less than 520 <laughs> you know um and that was sort of that's sort of the elon musk example i think that's uh, a beautiful a really pretty way to I think to think about the problem and see like an innovative sort of out of the box approach to um, to analyzing something, you know. But but from the chapter, what they had was they had the sterile stomach hypothesis, um, yeah, which was essentially that back in the I don't even know when this was. What, you, what was it like the 19th century, 18th something like that? Maybe the early 20th century even. Um, scientists thought that bacteria could not grow in the stomach because the stomach had such a high acidity. Um, so they didn't think that stomach ulcers could be treated with antibiotics, you know, because they were like, well, if you got a stomach ulcer, it's not, it, there's no way bacteria can be causing this because bacteria can't grow in the stomach. And anyway, so these 
two scientists were able to discover that acidity, well, the bacteria would grow in the stomach, and then they were able to throw out all the assumptions that people had made before, and they were to operate on new first first principles, saying, well, okay, given that bacteria grow in the stomach, now bacteria could be one of the causes for ulcers, so we could be able to treat ulcers with antibacterial. And that's been a major success. And I think they might have ended up winning the Nobel Prize for it. Um, <laughs> but it's, you know, obviously helped millions of people with ulcers around the world. So I guess that's pretty much it for first principles thinking. They had another example, too, which I thought was uh, just interesting to note. But the first principles of meat, do you remember what they were? Yes. Yeah, but interestingly, a first principle is not that it used to belong to an animal. Like, what makes meat meat is not that, oh, it came from an animal. It's the way it tastes in your mouth, the flavor, the spiciness, the, the scent of it, um, you know. And so I think that was one of the interesting ones where it's surprising when you look at it and you say, oh, well, wow, this thing that you would think must be a first principle, once you've looked at it, is not. You know? And obviously, we know now that's opened up completely. This way of thinking about meat has opened up whole new, um, really, markets and industries because now you know, people are trying to you know, use bacteria and grow them in a particular way so that they have the flavor of meat and the smell and the scent and everything else or you know, grow meat um, in a tube <laughs> so that you don't have to kill animals and all that other kind of stuff. So, hmm. yes. 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 Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. So if you're if you're uh, um, optimizing, say, for um, duration of energy storage, right, it would be different. You know, you would have different first principles. You might want to say, well, what you, I'm, I'm not sure what the analysis would look like, but maybe you're looking at different materials at that point, or um, I don't know what, what else you could do, you know, lasers or um, different physical methods. Hmm. Okay. Got anything else, Nathan? All right. I think this is one of the, after having read this chapter, I think this would be super useful for any pr programmer to know. Because as a programmer, you're constantly in a state of solving problems and generating solutions to problems. So if, you're, if your job has anything to do with that, so I think probably a lot of engineers too, um, software developers, um, this knowing sort of the Socratic questioning methods, the five whys, how to get to first principles thinking, 
um, are kind of vital because if you're really well versed in these methods, I feel like you can build not only is it going to help you build better software, build better systems overall, because that's what you're always trying to do. You're always trying to optimize something, improve something over previous iterations, previous versions. You know, all of us inherit soft, almost all of us anyway, inherit software um, that has been around for 20 years. And, you know, ironically, I think most a lot of developers think it's bad. But in some ways, to me, I think it's beautiful because those are the the sort of organisms that have survived. So most software will be written and no one will use it, right? But the software that is written that creates companies that other people use, that people inherit, that people didn't find bad, that's the software that's surviving. Does it make sense? Like that's the software that is living to the next generation <laughs> that is um, propagating itself further and it's, and it's building the world around us. So anyway, um, I think if you're wanting to um, improve those types of systems and make and ensure that they live longer and are optimized better, then these methods are pretty useful. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I agree it's useful for everyone. I just don't know if it would be useful in, in the day job for everyone, you know? Like, <laughs> well, I mean, it would be funny. Imagine, imagine a, um, like a guy who packs, um, trucks, like his job is to load trucks with, I used to have this job. That's why I'm picking it. Or, uh, um, you know, like load trucks, put boxes in trucks. And he's questioning the assumptions of putting boxes in trucks like every day, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, that, I mean, who knows? Maybe that guy would come up with the next, um, I don't know, uh, optimization uh, that saves billions of dollars and becomes the next Amazon, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, um, we'll check everyone out next week. Until then, peace out. <laughs>